I want you to picture this in your mind. It was a cold, snowy day in January of 2002. There was a young man who had already married his high school sweetheart, lovebirds. They were anxiously anticipating the birth of their first child. While she was anticipating the birth, uh, she worked part-time just to help make ends meet leading up to the birth. And the young man thought, you know what? It's my day off, and I'm going to be a gentleman. I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to be a a true gentleman. So I said, I'm going to take you to work today, and I'll pick you up when you're off. Takes her to work, drops her off, has good intentions. I don't know what happened that day. That young man got distracted by something and was doing this. Now, this is 2002. This is before cell phones. This is when everybody had pagers, but this young couple couldn't afford one of those pagers. Well, there's a big box that you wore, and it would beep, 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 so you get their attention. And it uh, just so happened that the young man got busy and uh, uh, didn't show up when she got off work. And so that, that young lady who's nine months pregnant, she had to, to walk home in, uh, on a snowy blizzard day uh, all on her own. Doesn't matter that she, we lived, uh, she lived a block from where the workplace was. She still had to walk home on that cold, windy, snowy day because that young man had good intentions, but good intentions weren't good enough. I think about this story often as I watch this woman put my kids to bed at night. And I think about what this teaches me about how good intentions oftentimes are not good enough. Am I right? If you have a Bible... I'm going to invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, If you uh, have a phone, you can pull it up on your phone, your iPad. We'll also have all the verses we read on the screen behind me. Um, We've been working at a snail's pace going through the book of 1 Peter. And so today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. But have you ever noticed this idea about good intentions? And how many times we think that just because we have good intentions, it's almost as good as reality. I mean, how how many of us have gym memberships to prove this idea? Like, I've got the gym membership, and that's as good as reality. I'm going to be in shape. Think about your life. Think about somebody who has promised you something. They promised you and said, hey, hey, I'll do this for you. I'll I'll be there for you. But when they don't deliver, you and I quickly realize, man, good intentions don't really matter. Your good intentions don't mean anything to me when you don't fulfill what you said. It's just not good enough. Unfortunately, that this idea of good intentions becoming a reality has crept into the church world as well. Where in the church world, we think, well, if I just have a well-intentioned prayer, if I have an emotional response to Jesus at the end of a service at church at some point, then that means I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus. I'm a Jesus follower. Almost kind of like signing up for the gym. Or almost kind of like giving my credit card to buy into that membership. Or taking that step with the best of intentions is the same thing as actually going to the gym. Or actually deciding to follow Jesus. Now we need to realize here in church world, those things are not the same. Those things are not the same. There's a difference between having a good intention and actually following Jesus. And listen, if you are, are a visitor here today, you're checking out Restoration Church, maybe you're checking out Christianity. You just heard me say that good intentions don't necessarily mean that a reality has taken place in your heart. 
Okay? And sometimes you begin to hear, feel this burden. Oh, they're talking about me being this, this great person, this great Christian. Listen, I want you to hear this. You need to hear this right here, right now. Okay? You do not have to clean up your act to come to Jesus. Okay? You don't. That's, that, that's not the way Christianity works. In fact, here at Restoration Church, we say that we are a place where it is okay to not be okay. You look around. We've got a lot of people who are not okay. And it's okay to not be okay. Jesus, his arms are wide open. He's saying, listen, all of you, come as you are. You are accepted. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are adopted as a son of daughter of God, not because of what you've done. Not because you've cleaned up your act. Not because you are such a good person, but because of what Jesus has done for you. See, the message of Christianity is not that you and I have to clean up our act in order to be good enough so we can cross the line into the family of God and become a Christian. But it's that we come as we are. But here's the deal with that. Okay? Restoration Church, it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. We need to understand this how, this is, this is what happens. Like once you join the gym and you truly join the gym and start working out, what happens is you get into shape. And once you truly start following Jesus, what happens is God begins to change you from the inside out. And so it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Does that make sense? So we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 today, and we're going to look and see Uh, Being a Christian means that we we adopt the same way of thinking as Jesus. That's what we're going to look at today, uh, moving beyond good intentions. So if you have a Bible, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to invite you to stand up and uh, follow along as I read uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And here's what Peter writes to us today. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past uh, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless, idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And that is God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, just thankful for the opportunity to open up your word. And uh, God, just to be here at Restoration Church. God, I understand that most of us are here today not because any other reason other than God, you brought us here. You placed us here. You gave us a connection that invited us. And God, you have us here for a reason, for a purpose. And God, I pray that you help us to understand that we're coming here today not to hear a pastor give his opinions, but God, you're coming to speak to us. And I pray that all of us would humble ourselves and say, God, would you speak to me today through your word? That you'd help me to to know you deeper, to make you known in my life. God, we thank you for allowing your spirit to be on us. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And uh, Peter starts out and he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, verse 1, 
And this starting out kind of connects back to the same idea that, that Peter's been talking about. In fact, that connects back to First um, Peter 3.18 that says, Christ suffered for our sins, uh, death in the flesh, so that we could be alive in the spirit. Again, one of the things that Peter often does is he says, this is what God has done for you. This is what God has done. God did this for you. He suffered for you. And now in response to that, here's what you're supposed to do. So he's saying because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, he's saying here's, here's, your, here's your starting point for Christianity. Here's the foundation for Christianity. Verse 1, he says, arm yourselves the same way of thinking. He's saying here's what Christ has done for you. He suffered for you. Now here's what you're supposed to do. You and I are supposed to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus. See, this changes things a little bit. Because we understand that Christianity, uh, being a Christian, isn't just a result of, of, of praying a prayer at the end of an emotional service. It's not just a, a nod to God. It's not just saying, well, I have to choose between God and Satan, heaven and hell. Well, I, obviously, I choose heaven. It goes beyond that. It says that we are to arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking. That if we're a Christian, we try to emulate Jesus. We want to become like him. This is the very beginning point, the foundational aspect of Christianity. And it's where those two ideas meet, where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Like these things come together, and this is what Christianity is. It is absolutely okay to not be okay. But when you meet Jesus, that comes into, he's going to change us and make us different. And so this is what we're going to look at. If we're going to supposed to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, what does that mean for us? Peter's going to show us three things about this is the kind of ways that we're supposed to be thinking if we're going to think like Jesus. Three things in this passage. The first one uh, is going to be that we have the, we adopt his same attitude towards suffering. Okay. And here's what he says. Verse one, he says, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear that word cease from sin. And there's kind of two responses. When I hear that word cease from sin, number one, I freak out because I know I haven't ceased from sin. I freak out like, man, maybe I'm not doing this Christianity thing right because I know I still struggle with sin. And the other response is you fake out. You become a Pharisee. Well, if I'm not supposed to sin, I'm going to fake it. Fake it till I make it. And I'll just try and look the part of having it all together. But that's not exactly what he's saying here. He's not saying you're supposed to, to freak out or to fake out. Because what Peter is trying to teach us here is, is trying to show us Jesus' mentality towards suffering, his attitude towards suffering. And this is, this is his attitude towards suffering. He's going to say it's better to suffer than to sin. It is better to suffer than to sin. In fact, throughout the life of, of, of Jesus, you see him adopt this attitude that it is better to suffer than to sin. You see it in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, talking about Jesus going to the cross. He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross. He endured the suffering because of the joy that was going to come because of it. Because of the end reward. You know what the end reward for Jesus suffering on the cross was? It's you and me. Like, look around. This is it. Like, we are it. We're the joy set before him. Congrats. Jesus could endure that suffering because he knew what the result was going to be. It would be you and I having transformed lives. You see this idea again of his attitude towards suffering in Matthew chapter 26. 
Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And, and, and this is, this is the, the, the night he's going to be betrayed. The day before he's going to be crucified. Before he's going to be hung on the cross. And Jesus goes and he spends some time praying to God. And this is what he pray, prays. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's saying, I know there's suffering's going to come. I know it's going to be horrible. The pain I'm going to go through. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Ultimately, he says, man, I don't want to suffer, but I want to do what you want, God. And if this is what you're going to lead me to do because of the end result, man, God, I'm in. Again, Jesus has given us this attitude, it's better to suffer than to sin. You see it in, in, in the temptation of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4. The temptation of Jesus, we understand that Jesus was, was fully human. He was fully God and fully human. And he's saying, well, how does that work? Well, I don't really know. I just know that it says both these things, that Jesus was fully human as well as being fully God. And so while he was on the earth, he, he had to do the things that you and I, he had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to do all these things that you and I do. And, and he had to live by the spirit like you and I are supposed to. So in Matthew chapter 4, you, you, you read about the temptation of Jesus where, where Satan comes and, and tries to tempt Jesus. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He hasn't had any food for 40 days. And in comes Jesus, and in comes Satan. And Satan says, hey, Jesus, Jesus, are you hungry? Jesus, here's some rocks. Why don't you turn these, these rocks into bread? Why don't you avoid the pain that you're going through right now? Jesus, you're hungry. It's been 40 days, bro. Come on, eat some of this rock. Make you some bread. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to choose obedience. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. Second temptation comes, and, 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 and P, uh, Satan comes and says, Hey, Jesus, why don't you jump off a high place? Why don't you jump off the pinnacle of the temple? And everybody, you can jump off and survive, and everybody will be so impressed with you, Jesus. Everybody will believe in you because you can jump off the temple and survive. And that's going to be much better than Jesus, you doing this three years of ministry and going on this miracle tour and, and, and just do this one big thing for everybody to see. And Jesus says, No. No, that's okay. I'm going to be obedient to God and fulfill God's will in my life. Finally, the third temptation. Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the, of the world. According to the New Testament, Satan is uh, the God of this world. He's the ruler of this world. Jesus, God, God is ruler of the universe, but Satan is ruler of this world. And so Satan says to Jesus, hey, listen, don't go to the cross. Here's what you do, Jesus. If you bow down and worship me, everything will be yours. I will quick claim all the kingdoms of this earth and everybody will worship you if you get down on your knees and you bow down and worship me. You avoid the pain of all the, the cross and all the things that are set before you. And Jesus says, no, I'm choosing to be obedient to God no matter what the circumstance. And see, Peter is saying this is the attitude that you and I are to have to suffering. That it is better for us to suffer than it is to sin. It is better to suffer than to sin. Now, I don't know. You look at our modern society. I don't know if it's something with technology or, or maybe the American culture. But most of us do whatever it takes to avoid any pain, right? Most of us do whatever it takes to vo avoid having any struggle, to have to wait for anything, to be in limbo with what's going to happen in life. We don't want to have any suffering in our life. And, and maybe it's this American culture where we are supposed to have uh, love, uh, life, love, and the pursuit of happiness, and those becomes our priorities in life. In fact, there's a study that kind of shows this. There's a study, maybe you've seen this study, 
where they grab a bunch of kids and they put them in a room. And they put the kids in the room and they give them two marshmallows. And they tell the kids, here's the deal, kids. I'm going to leave these marshmallows right here. If you, don't, if you don't eat these marshmallows, when I come back in about five minutes, I'll give you ten marshmallows. You, anybody seen this study? The kids are in there and, and, and the adult leaves and the kid's kind of poking at the marshmallow, kind of smelling it, licking it, you know, trying to ch- check it out. And the idea is, is can these kids hold off the temporary satisfaction for the long-term reward, right? Now, what's interesting about that study is the kids who couldn't wait. The kids who looked and said, man, I can't wait for that five minutes for the 10 marshmallows. I'm going to go right now and eat one of those marshmallows right now. Those kids had higher rates of addiction. They follow those kids as they grew up to an adult. Higher rates of addiction, higher divorce rates, lower SAT scores. Because they couldn't get this idea that it's better to suffer for a short time for the long-term gain than it is to take the short-term gain for the, for, for the long-term let down. Now, it's easy as adults, we look at and say, well, that's kids. They're just, they're just childish. But what about, what about us? The reality is you and I are going to face times or situations in life where we have to choose between, the, between, between doing the right thing and having the reward later and, and the pain right now versus avoiding the pain right now, doing the wrong thing and losing the reward later. That's the dilemma that we are going to face in life. That's the dilemma some of you are facing in life right now. And Jesus, this is what he would say to you. See the big picture. See the big picture. Don't give in for those two marshmallows now. Because there's a greater reward that God has promised to you later. If you will endure. In fact, when when Peter writes and says, whoever suffers ceases to sin. Think about this. Most of the sin we do. You know what sin is? Sin is doing the things that we know we shouldn't do, or it's not doing the things that we know we should do, okay? Most of the sin that we do, I'm going to say, is to avoid pain, right? In fact, even when we sin for, for pleasure, we're doing it to avoid the opposite of pleasure. We're doing it to avoid pain, which is why we do it. Think about this. I want you to think about this statement. Once we lose uh, our fear of suffering, sin begins to lose its power over us. Once we lose our fear of suffering, sin begins to lose its power over us. Because listen, if you fear, if you fear loneliness, you know what happens? You change your standards. You lower your standards. You get into bad relationships. You get stupid, and it leads to sin. You know what happens when you fear suffering financially? You do stupid things. You sin. You break rules. You bend the rules to fit your context. You can get the most amount of resources as you can. You sacrifice other things that are more important because it's all about the dollar bill. You know what happens when you fear a lack of fulfillment? You do stupid things. Stupid things trying to fill that void in your life. When you, when you fear emotional pain, you do stupid things and you close people out and you don't allow people in. You become all alone. This is this idea. If we lose our fear of struggle, of suffering, sin begins to lose its power over us. You want a picture of what that looks like? 
Let me ask you this. Ladies in here today, okay? How many of you have given birth to more than one child? Like, just, just, like, why would you do that? Like, why would you do that? <laughs> you do it for the joy set before you. Now, you ever heard this, that, that if men were to give birth, every family would only have one child? Like, amen to that, right? That's the truth. But ladies, you know why you do it a second time? Because the fear is gone. Oh, you had to endure the, the pain and the suffering. But man, I've been there. I survived. Yeah, I can make it through again. That's why we did it five times. Whew. Another example, I was a high school wrestler. And I tell you, when we started wrestling practice, I hated it. Because they would, they would do about half hour, 45 minutes of, hey, let's talk about some, some moves and some different things to do. And then they would take us for an hour and a half. And they run us through the gauntlet for three weeks straight. And I hated it. We would have to go and run stairs for half an hour, up and down. And we couldn't walk the stairs. Like, they would make us run the stairs. And then they would make us do these wall sits where you have to sit with your back against the wall, your legs. And then they'd make you hold some, like, weights in front of you. So you're sitting here like this. And then when you're done with that, they'd make you run uh, sprints. And you have to run these lines. We did this for like an hour and a half every day. It was horrible. I, I hated it. I hated the coach. But you know why we did it? Because it taught us what we were capable of. So that way, when the wrestling season actually started and we're on the wrestling mat, man, that six-minute match, man, I got this. I can survive six minutes out here. Look, if I can survive an hour and a half of coach literally kicking our butts, that's the reason why I can't survive a six-minute match going toe-to-toe with somebody else. See, when you follow Jesus, when you decide to move beyond a good intention and actually decide to follow Jesus— you're going to have a choice to make. The choice is you can avoid suffering for a short-term gain. Or you can do the right thing for the long-term reward. And this is where you've got to make a choice. Are you going to choose to take the easy way out? Are you going to choose to adopt the attitude that Jesus had towards suffering? That it is better for us to suffer than it is to sin. Another example of this. Proverbs chapter 19. The book of Proverbs speaks directly to this idea. 19 verse 22 uh, writes, What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. A poor man is better than a liar. How many of us would say we agree with that? I want to raise your hand. Most of us would say, yeah, I, I agree with that. But how many actually live it out? I mean, sure, I agree with that, but then what about those little things? What about when we can stretch the truth just a little bit to benefit us? This is where you begin to make that business deal. This is when you start doing your taxes. This is when somebody calls you and says, hey, where's the check? And you say, oh, it's in the mail. A poor man is better than a liar. Man, you can take that verse and switch it to anything. That was about money. Make that about alcohol, pornography, comparison, jealousy. What's your vice? What's your struggle? It's better for us to be a poor man than whatever that vice is. This is a foundation of Christianity. That if we are going to follow Jesus, that we are going to begin to think like him, to act like him. And we're going to adopt his attitude towards suffering.
that we will make the choice to follow Jesus, and it won't always be the easy path. And when we follow Jesus, chances are there's going to be some suffering involved, but it is worth it. It is worth it. Second thing, second way of thinking that we need to adopt. Number two is that our motivation in life is going to be God's will, not our impulses. Here's what he says. He says, verse two, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, when you decide to follow Jesus, when you become a Christian, you have a new motivation in, your, in, in life. The motivation is to uh, follow the will of God. See, Christianity, one of the other terms for, for a Christian is a Christ follower. Okay? Now, this is going to be really deep. You might want to write this down. You know what followers do? Followers follow. Like, that's deep. That's gold right there. Hashtagable. Restoration Church. Followers follow. See, Christianity doesn't mean that you're all put together. Christianity doesn't mean that you have uh, your act all together and you're perfect. The question is, is there evidence that you are truly following Jesus? Are you submitting any part of your life to God's plans for your life? Now imagine this. Imagine that I decided I was going to start training for a half marathon. Some of you are laughing, I know. It's funny, isn't it? Okay, on the first day, on the first week, on the first month, I'm training to go and run this half marathon. There's going to be people who run these things for real, looking at me saying, look at that guy. Look at him go. Like, like, like he's got, he has no clue what he's doing, right? It doesn't really matter what other people think because I'm in training. I'm, it might take me six months. It might take me a year, but I am making progress towards the goal. And my, my, my training might be pathetic, but it's far better than me sitting on my couch, right? See, this is what we need to understand. It is okay for us to struggle with sin, but the key is it's a struggle. We are trying to follow. Just like if I'm training for the half marathon, listen, I might look horrible doing it, but I'm working towards it. I'm trying I'm struggling towards that. And it's the same thing with Christianity. Are we struggling to follow Jesus? The danger is when we begin to defend our sin. The danger is we begin to defend and say, okay, well, I know that God says this, but I'm going to hold on to this and do this my way anyways, even though, and kind of thumb my nose at God and say, God, no, I'm not going to, you can't tell me how to live my life here. The struggle is when we begin to defend our sin or when we begin to set camp up in our sin. See, we need to adopt this attitude that Jesus begins to change our motivation. Or our motivation becomes the will of God. In fact, here's another statement. And I wonder if there's someone here today who could say amen to this because they've been there. No matter how hard God's will seems today, it's far harder to be out of God's will. Anybody been there? Anybody say, man, I've walked away from it? There are stories, I'm sure, dozens of stories in this room that we could tell about this idea. When we truly, truly are following Jesus, we have a different motivation. We want to follow God's will in our life. And when we change our motivation to God's will, it means we no longer live for the flesh. Here's, here's what he says in verse 3. He says, the time that is past 
suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. See, we see this idea about living in the flesh, and what does that mean? It means the contrary to living for the will of God is living for our impulses. It means that we are motivated by our impulses. And if we're truly following God, we're no longer motivated by our impulses. Now we're motivated by the will of God. You say, well, what does it mean to be motivated by your impulses? Let me ask you this. Parents, you think about your kids again, okay? Anybody have to teach their kids how to sin? Anybody call the school and say, hey, I've got a problem with my kid. They're not sinning. Can you create a program to teach my kids how to sin like all the other kids? No. Kids naturally do it. Kids are naturally sinful from birth. All about me, 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 my, my, my. And maturity is moving away from being me, all about me, and all about my. And spiritual maturity is the same thing. It's, it's moving past those natural impulses. In fact, this is where you take Jesus' attitude towards suffering. See, what happens is you and I, we have a drive inside of us. We have a drive and we think, well, this is my right to fulfill my drive. So we might say something like this. We might say, uh, you know, I'm sexually driven. I, you know, I've got this drive for, for, for sexual intercourse and, and, and interaction. And, you know, my spouse, they don't fulfill me. And so I'm just going to go pursue a little bit of something on the outside, a little bit of porn, and, and try and make up because I'm not fulfilled. Or we begin to say, man, I have a drive for, for, for that, that, that bottle. I have a drive for the taste of that drug. And, and, you know, it's not really that bad because I have this drive inside of me. And so I'm just trying to fulfill the, 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 the drive inside of me. And it's okay because I've got this drive inside of me. But that's not what, what, what this is, is saying. This is why we need to have the attitude of Jesus. Why the motivation should be the will of God instead of our impulses. This is why we need the right attitude towards suffering. Because sometimes we have to suffer. Uh, it's necessary for that long-term reward. We've got to say, you know what? I understand this is the way that God has called me to live. And I'm not going to allow the impulses of my flesh to guide me anymore. Now I'm going to say, God, I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to let you dictate what I have to do. And that means sometimes we're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to be less fulfilled than we think we should be in order to be obedient to the will of God. Because we understand there's a long-term reward at stake. And what happens when we become motivated by God's will instead of our impulses? This shouldn't surprise anybody in here. When you begin to be motivated by God's will and change the way you live, man, people around you begin to not understand what's happening. That's what Peter says in verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they, this is your non-Christian uh, friends and family and neighbors and co-workers. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Peter says, don't be surprised if people begin to slander you. Because they can't understand why you aren't doing the things that they do. Why you're not doing the things that you used to do. Why you are different now than you were before. Because what happens is when you and I begin to live differently than them, it disturbs them because it tells them something is wrong in their life. It shows them there's a better way to life and makes them feel self-conscious. Makes them feel like, man, there's something wrong with me and I don't want to feel like anything is wrong with me. So they begin to malign you and slander you. 
In fact, this is a theme of the book of 1 Peter. That when you live right, man, people are going to slander you. And we're going to struggle and suffer because of our faith. Because people around us don't have the same peace that you and I do when we follow Christ. Third thing, same way of thinking of Jesus, is that we're to live in view of eternity. Live in light of eternity. Verse 5 says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Listen, rest assured, those who malign you, who slander you, who mock you because of your faith, they don't get the last word. God does. That's good to hear. That's good to be reminded of. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this is the judgment. See, when every, every person on this earth, when we die, we go into eternity that lasts forever. And we are judged in that moment. Did you know Jesus? Did you follow him or not? And this is why we choose to suffer over sin. Because sin satisfies for the moment, but the reward for obedience lasts forever in eternity. It says, verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now that verse almost sounds a little bit confusing. Kind of sounds like, well, did he just say that somebody's going to go and preach to people who are dead and give them a second chance? No, that's not what he is saying. That is against the whole passage of the scripture. The whole passage is saying, hey, don't indulge in the flesh. Don't, don't, don't indulge in your impulses because you don't get a second chance. What Peter's trying to say is the gospel was preached to those who were alive, who are now dead. And Pete's saying this idea, do you think they're glad that they thought and lived like Jesus? Because nobody, nobody ends up in eternity and thinks, man, I wish I would have uh, lived for my impulses a little bit more. Nobody enters eternity thinking that. In fact, when you live in light of eternity... It causes you to live in a certain way. When you live in the reality that heaven is real, that hell is hot, and eternity is forever, it causes us to live differently. And we view things differently. We view, view uh, uh, sex and money and suffering different because eternity is in view. In fact, uh, some of you may know the name of Leo Tolstoy. You say, well, who's that? Uh, the book War and Peace. This is the guy that wrote the book War and Peace. And at some point in his life, he had some sort of religious conversion. And it's interesting because he wrote a little book on, called Confessions. And this is what Tolstoy said. He said, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate which, without much effort on my part, increased. My name was respected I enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live because of the knowledge of my coming death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one cannot live. Is there anything, is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love, and then to me. Soon, not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who remember anything that I have written or done. Comes to a point when we need to recognize that we live in light of eternity. Most of us in here today, no one's going to remember us 100 years from now. After we die, 
they're not going to remember, oh, you worked for this or that. Oh, you, you, you built that house. Oh, you did this. We're not going to be remembered 100 years from now. And so this is why the psalmist in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Because when we live in light of eternity, man, we understand that we live for the glory of God, for the mission of Jesus, for the souls of people. In fact, you want to know the only two things that you and I can touch that are eternal? You think about this. We, we spend all of our time investing in building careers and building houses and doing these things. The only two things that you and I can touch that are eternal are God's word and the souls of people. Those are the two areas that we can invest in that will last for eternity. And just to try and figure out, how do you, how do you wrap this up? I'm going to point us back to the resurrection. The fact that Jesus died on the cross. He suffered. He took on the penalty for our sin. He died in our place. And they placed him in the tomb. And three days later, he walked right out of that puppy. He walked right out of that tomb. And see, this is the key to Christianity. That if we're going to think like Jesus, it's going to lead us back to the power of the resurrection. See, the resurrection is not something we just talk about at Easter. The resurrection is the key to this whole thing. Have you based your life and your hope on the resurrection of Jesus? Because the resurrection of Jesus... That is the power for us to change. That is the power that the power that brought Jesus out of that tomb is the same power that transforms our lives. In fact, the only way for you and I to stop sinning is to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The only way for you and I to leverage our life for the glory of Jesus and the glory of God is through the power of the resurrection. The question I have for you today is this. Have you ever yielded your life for the glory of Jesus? Are you trying to say, Jesus, I want to be like you? Or do you have good intentions? Oh, church, that's just my membership. That's the membership I pay, and I I hope I'm going to become Christ-like. I hope that's good enough. Have you ever yielded your life to the glory of Jesus? Where you've said, okay, God, I get it. No more is my life about me. Today, Jesus, I dedicate my talents and my money and my pain and my prosperity. I dedicate all that I am to you. And you might not know what God wants in your life, and that's okay. Because he'll lead you. He'll guide you. He'll tell you. The question is, will you lay yourself at the altar and say, God, I'm yours. Do what you want with me. All of me. It's today I'm going to dedicate my life to you. Because this is what it means for us to follow Jesus. This is what it means for us to move beyond good intentions. To actually follow.